It'll be uh, Psalm 85, and that's going to be page 814 in your Trinity. <clears throat> when you come to that, please stand with us. <clears throat> Psalm 85, let's begin. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fears of men. Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near, and his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give you what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Father in heaven, we pray that you would accept this gladly and find favor with this reading, that the heads who are here this day, Lord, would be blessed by your hand. In the name of Christ, amen. Please remain standing. You take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 19. 19 in the red.
the battle hymn. I believe that's in the brown. <coughs> I'm looking. It is 569 in the brown. 569 <coughs> in the brown. <laughs> I think it got put away for Christmas and didn't get put back up. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. (coughs) 
When you come to that, please stand with us. Speaking to the fall of man. Genesis 3, 1 through 19. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Father in heaven, may we examine this lament 
that we are faced with as men and women in sin, and that your hand be upon us, Lord, that you would find blessing with this reading, that we would learn and gain wisdom from it. We ask in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We take your red hymnal again and turn to number 251. 251 in the red. <clears throat> 251 in the red.
Our scripture text this morning is found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 and following. In our last study, we noted that God has an elective love for his people, choosing whom he will love based upon his own determinate will and not on some foreseen faith or good works in the recipients. He loved Jacob, he hated Esau, but we observe that both Jacob and Esau deserved to be hated as condemned by God because of their sin and their rebellion. God just chose to be merciful to Jacob, and if we try to find the reason for that in Jacob, we have erred greatly. Paul says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the one out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use, Romans 9, verse 21. We noted in the second place why God must be the initiator of any relationship between sinners and himself. And that is because we are dead spiritually, as Scripture says. We went to uh, uh, Ezekiel 37, to the valley of the dry bones, and as an illustration of how dead men are towards God. There they lay in the noonday sun, dead, bleached to bones for years and years, with total inability to relate to God. But God sent his spirit upon them, and it came alive, and that those dead bones were transformed. And that's what God does with every sinner that comes to Christ. We're dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, and God sends his spirit upon us to grant us life. Today's study picks up on this last theme, the deadness of sinners towards God, by looking at how this came to be. And secondly, how extensive the deadness is. And finally, the remedy for such deadness. So as we come to the scriptures, let us seek God's enablement. Father, we thank you for the word of God, and even when it tells of our tragic relationship with you apart from your wonderful grace, it reminds us that we are indeed indebted to you and your mercy for everything that we are in Christ, and that it has nothing to do with our own righteousness or our right moves that we make or our obedience to the law or any of that. It has to do with your grace and your mercy upon very, very needy sinners. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't allow us to stay in that state, but you sent your spirit of conversion upon our hearts and brought us into a right relationship with you, granting us your righteousness and your holiness by way of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you paid for our sins in Jesus so that the slate is wiped clean. We pray that we will live according to that in Christ's name. Amen. 
Today we're looking at the fall of man into sin. It's from the first book of the Bible, and it's in Genesis 3, verses 1 and following. The first thing we want to observe is that this was a severe fall in Eden. It was not a stumble. It was a severe fall. All of us are familiar with the account of Adam and Eve. And we're so familiar with it that we scarcely take time to think about it and how devastating their sin was to themselves and to the whole human race. There was no defects in the creation of our first parents. None. Solomon writes, God made man upright. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. This is the conclusion of the creative act that we find described in Genesis 1:27 and following. This is the conclusion of the work of God in, in his creative powers. God created man in his own image, we are told. I'm reading verse 27 of Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? When we think of image, we probably conclude something etherical, something maybe not real, maybe ghost-like. If we were to look at a photograph of a family member we may say, well, that's mother, or, or that's father. But in our heart, we know that such is just an image of them. If mom called up the steps and said, Janie, you forgot to kiss your father and I goodnight, we would think it absurd if Janie responded, yes, I did, I kissed your pictures on my dresser. This is how we think of image. A replica. Uh, but mm, not the real thing. We may bring that concept to a text like this. In Genesis 1 verse 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Is God saying that the creation of man in his own image was not a real representation of his character in man? Are we to believe that Adam and Eve were facsimiles of God, replicas in clay, but not real image bearers of the divine nature? Well, Genesis 1 verse 26 sheds some light on the subject. Here we read of another word, a synonym. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Hmm. The terms are used interchangeably. Genesis 5, verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them 
man, adama in Hebrew, ground, dirt. God's title for Adam. So to be made in the image of God is to be like God. But like God in what way? Well, in every attribute of God which he is able to share with finite creatures. Cold in theology, the communicable attributes. Oh, there's a mouthful. The communicable attributes of God. That is, characteristics which God may communicate to his creatures, such as power to rule. Man has that. Righteousness and holiness of character. He can have that. The ability to know. The ability to will or to make decisions. The ability to love others. The ability to be able to think and reason. And the ability to feel and experience emotion. All those characteristics of God himself are communicated or communicable to his creation, to man and woman. But, here's important. Some attributes of God he cannot share with creatures. For example, his infinity, his eternality. In other words, God always was. Man is a creature of time-space. So we have a start, we have a beginning, And being in a corporal body, we are spatially locked into one location at a time. We may know, but we do not know all things. And so omniscience, God does not share with us. We may have power and rule over others, but we are not all-powerful. In other words, we have limitations. Something Satan never learned about himself. Instead, he said, I will be like the most high God. Fool that he was, is. For our purposes this morning, we are looking at the ways in which Adam and Eve were like God, as people created in God's image. And by the way, image does not mean phantom. It does not mean not real. In fact, the picture is the direct opposite. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of Jesus, He describes him as the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Wow. That's New King James. NIV says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. You recall Jesus' statement to Philip. 
Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. No difference. To be sure, there are differences between how Adam and Eve bore the image of God in their person and how Jesus bore the image of the last Adam, who he was. Adam and Eve were like God in all those ways they could become so. Jesus was God in all the ways open to Adam and Eve and in all the ways not open to them as finite creatures. So you've got to kind of keep these distinctions in mind. Why am I laboring the point? Well, it's this reason. What is so important about Adam and Eve being created in the image or likeness of God? Well, it means that God created them upright with no, no bias towards sin, no propensity towards disobedience, no hint of a flaw in their character, no latent anomaly which raised its ugly head later, no predisposition to disobedience, no inability to understand and obey. God did more. He made Adam and Eve after the pattern of his own perfect character. He endowed them with his abilities. Let me give you some examples. Like God, Adam had power to rule. God said, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1 verse 27. Let them rule over all. Adam and Eve. Secondly, like God, Adam had the ability to create, be fruitful, and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, Genesis 1, verse 28. And of Adam, we read later on, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, (coughs) in his own image, And he named him Seth. Genesis 5, 3. So he had the ability to create life through procreation. Thirdly, he had the ability to know the created world and to work in wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So Adam did, and he did so with the knowledge of a horticulturalist, knowing full well what each specimen of plant or tree needed to produce fruit and thrive. He knew what to do to have that occur. Fourthly, like God, Adam had the ability to think and to reason beyond his own existence. God brought them, that is, the animals and the birds, God brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever he called every living creature, that was its 
name. So he's doing the work of a zoologist, familiar with all the ways of the animal kingdom. Number five, like God, Adam was free to act on his own. Chapter 2, verse 16 of Genesis. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Wow. No check upon his freedom to act. Free to eat from any. That's pretty wide. That's pretty gracious. And it included the tree of life had Adam chosen to eat of it. So he had that kind of freedom. Number six, he had freedom to decide for himself his course. But, said God, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 17. So here is a prohibition, but not a restriction, by which I mean God warned him, don't eat. But Adam was free to make up his own mind. That is to say, he was not programmed to obey like an automaton, like a robot, no. To obey or disobey That was Adam's decision. Number seven, like God, Adam was enabled to love others and to be loved in return. We read the Lord made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man, and that's what the word woman means. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis 2, 22 and following. And verse 18 calls Eve a helper suitable for him, for Adam, Animals do not love. We attribute human emotions to them, but they're not made in God's image. We look at a basset hound, you know what they look like. They got those big droopy eyes and the droopy ears to go along with it. We say, oh, look at him. He's so sad. No, he's not. He's not sad. He just looks that way because of physical characteristics on his face. You ever look at a Sharpa? The area rule, get a, an eyeful if you look at a Sharpa dog. All that hair hanging down over their eyes. They look etherical from some other galaxy. What they look like physically has nothing to do with whether they're sad or happy. All of these things then evidence the image of God in Adam and Eve. The power to rule, the power to create, 
the power to know things, the power to work, to think, to reason, to be free to act, to be able to decide for themselves as an act of their will, to be endowed with emotions like love and kindness, etc. These are all positive enablements of God to them as the first human beings. No predisposition to sin, but every enablement to live righteously like God their Creator. Truly free, truly alive in God, truly attuned to His will without being coerced to do it. They were that way. And the accompanying accoutrements are not to be minimized either. What do I mean? Well, the Garden of Eden, take that for example, the paradise of God, a lush, green oasis watered by no less than four main tributaries, the Pishon in Hebrew meaning gusher, Gihon, Hebrew meaning spurter, the Tigris, the Euphrates, chapter 2, verse 11, and following. And the climate was such that one could walk around naked and not be bothered by the elements. And at that time, the mosquitoes didn't suck blood, the gnats didn't bite flesh, the canker worms didn't destroy plant life, and thistles and weeds and poison ivy and poison oak and poison sumac did not exist. Sounds like paradise. It was paradise on earth. Going barefoot in the park resulted in no thorns in the feet. Gardening resulted in no toil or arduous cultivation to rid the soil of weeds. The soil was fertile in the fertile crescent which housed the garden of God. All of this indicates that Adam and Eve were perfect people placed on a Perfect environment. There was no lawlessness. There was no crime. There was no rape, no hatred, no malice, no jealousy, no deprivation, no poverty, no lack of opportunity, no injustice, no inequality. They came into being off the fingertips of God with a silver spoon in their mouth and having the world by the tail. Nothing opposed them, nothing assaulted them, nothing deprived them, maligned them, made them ill, or did them harm. Nothing like that. Heaven was on earth, and they were the sole stewards of this pristine paradise. They were free to act as no man or woman has been sent. They were truly made in the image of God, and they carried that likeness with them wherever they went. Now I've said all that to say this. When Eve was deceived by the illogical lies of the evil one, and Adam, her husband, became a willing participant in her sin of disobedience by choosing to eat of the forbidden tree... That decision of the will was deliberate, 
intentional and on Adam's part premeditated disobedience not only to the express commands of God, but to all that their very being and environment affirmed to them about God. Wow. They went against their righteous makeup as image bearers of God. They chose Satan's lie over God's truth. They walked through the door of disobedience and rebellion with no coercion by God, and they walked without their own free will. They chose lies over truth, wickedness over righteousness, insanity over reason, darkness over light, and Satan over God. Now, as you might imagine, this was no stumble on the pathway of life, but a plunge off the precipice into destruction. It was no stubbed toe, but a casting of both body and soul into the cavern of hell. It was more than suicide. It was genocide of the most outrageous dimensions, killing not only themselves, but the whole human race with them. To break the command of God, Adam and Eve had to deliberately go against all that they were in terms of the righteousness of God and the holiness of God in which they were made. Their sin was deliberate, it was defiant, it was on purpose, it was intentional, it was irrevocable, and it was deadly. They died that day, as God had warned. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 17. God said, you will surely die. But Satan, through the serpent, said, verse 4 of chapter 3, you will not surely die. Oh, okay. God said, you're going to surely die. And Satan comes along and says, you will not surely die. And Paul wrote what happened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1, verse 25. Okay, Adam and Eve, so you want to live a life of sin instead of the righteousness in which you were created? 
Have at it. It's a terrible thing when God abandons us to our own lusts. People think it's great. They haven't lived all of life yet. They haven't died yet. They haven't faced judgment yet. What about that? What about the extent of the fall? Well, this was and is the result of the entrance of sin into God's perfect creation. It was not a stumble. He didn't trip. It was a severe fall from which there is no human recovery. Every murder, every rape, every hatred, every jealousy, every malice or spite can be traced to the fall of Adam and Eve. Every abortion, every robbery, every extortion, or any other crime against humanity is the product of the fall. Every disease that racks your body, every deterioration of age, every gray head, every aching joint is according to the fall. Every war, every slaughter, every terrorist attack, every political intrigue, every double-cross, betrayal, and treacherous act was born at the fall. Every lie, every disobedience to parental authority, every cheating on the exams, every backtalk, every disrespect to a teacher has its roots in the fall. Every sexual perversion, every adultery, every fornication, every homosexual expression is from the fall where nakedness became shameful and recreational sex took precedence over the sanctity of the marriage bed. The fall did that. Every discord in the church of Christ, every lack of the honor of God, every rebellion against his instructions in the Bible, every church split, every church heresy, every religion that's false, Every cult, every unbiblical teaching comes straight from the fall where our first parents became worshipers in the synagogue of Satan and abandoned the temple of the Lord. This isn't minor, folks. This is catastrophic. This is mind-blowing. Our ignorance of truth, our dullness in learning, our forgetfulness, our lack of understanding, our preference of folly over wisdom has its roots in the fall. So, the fall was and is no little thing. The fall killed us towards God. Death came upon us as God warned And the result is that all mankind, without exception, is dead towards God. And being dead towards God means we have lost not only the ability to please God through obedience to his commands, but also the will to want to obey. Listen to the indictment God himself levels 
on fallen man. God says, There is no one who is righteous. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. And even when we bunch people together, there's not enough inherent worthiness in them collectively to make them worth anything to God. God says there is not one who does good. Not even one. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. And this text is describing deadness towards God in terms that we can understand. Those attributes that we saw that God built into Adam and built into Eve, they're gone. There is no one who is righteous, God now says. There is no one who understands, says God now. What is stated negatively is also stated positively, lest we miss the point. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. All of us is reference to God, of course, and what he does, because he is the capstone, is also the foundation stone. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's deadness towards God. That's the inability to respond to right, to God, the creator who made us. Adam killed us. Eve killed us. This is a horrendous, catastrophic outcome. You can't do anything about it. This is what you inherited. Come down through the bloodline. There are some who would say, well, we get, we we do get the part about man's intellect and his reasoning being marred and his loss of righteousness and holiness, we believe the godly side of those things were in fact killed in the fall, but we believe that the will of man remains intact. Okay, where do we see this in the Bible? Did we not read, no one seeks for God? Isn't that a decision of the will? All have turned away. Romans 3.11 We are hearing a lot these days about seekers. And churches have structured their whole program, and have advertised themselves as seeker-friendly churches. By which they mean that they will cater to people who are looking for God. But the Bible says that no one is looking for God. 
They have all turned away. Okay, then why are they in church? Well, they're looking for something. But it isn't the God of the Bible. And if the God of the Bible is preached, it becomes evident in short order that these people didn't want him because they leave when they are confronted with a close encounter of the divine kind. People are looking for the God of their imagination, the God of their own construct. But the God who is there calls to man and says, Where are you? And man answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Genesis 3, verse 9 and 10. Brethren, it isn't man who is seeking God. It is God who is seeking man. And where is man in the scenario? He's hiding in the bushes, hoping not to be discovered, wanting nothing to do with God. You say, you know, I always thought that man's will was intact because of the commands, because of the appeals that we find in the Scripture. You know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, or... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. For whosoever believes in me will never perish. God in commanding us as sinners to repent, to believe, to obey, etc. Yes, they're there in the scripture, but they are not appeals to our ability but rather to our responsibility. We've already seen that there is no ability in a spiritually dead person to respond aright to God. We lost that ability in the fall. Our first parents killed themselves, and the poison of their sinful act killed the entire offspring. Huh. But God has not lost his right to command just because you have lost your ability to obey. You are responsible to obey even if you don't obey. So we are all challenged on the basis of what we should be and do 
And this has a gospel effect because every time God commands, you shall not, and we go ahead and do it anyway, every time he commands, you shall, and we don't, the discrepancy between his command and our lack of compliance points up our sin, our failure, and points our sin as being more important than our need of God's mercy. And if we are going to be at peace with him, that has got to change. God's commands are not saying to you, you can. <laughs> you can. And, and that is why I command. You can do it. Rather, his commands are saying, you should. But you can't. But I can. This is the extent of the fall. Every aspect of our personality and our ability as people made in the image of God has been destroyed by sin so that we are dead towards God. <sighs> Brethren, if this were the end of the story, we should all fold our Bibles and go home and never listen to a sermon again because if this is the end, there is no good news. None. Nada. Zero. Thankfully, we have a remedy. Romans 5, verse 15 and following begins a wonderful and mind-boggling contrast between what Adam did to us and what Christ did for us. Verse 15, Romans 9. The gift of God is not like the trespass. For if the many, verse 12 says all, died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus, how much more will that overflow to the many? Not all, that's true, but to the many. I'll take that. Verse 16, again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. What's he saying? Adam sinned once and it killed him. And it killed the race. God's free and gracious gift of salvation followed many trespasses, not just one, resulting in justification before God. Think of it. Think of it. 
one sin killed. Many sins combined could not hinder God from saving. From saving. We begin to see a little light at the end of the tunnel. Black as our condition is, there is hope, but the hope does not lie within ourselves. No, it is external to us and resides solely in the grace of God. Verse 20 summarizes where sin increased, and it did, grace increased all the more. We are dead in sins, but not buried, not forgotten. We're dead towards God, but God can choose to make us alive towards him. Did we not read the other week the account of Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones? And the Spirit of God came upon them and said, Live. Live. And the dead came to life. God is God and Satan is not. Men are blind, but God sees. Men are impotent, but God is the creator of men. Men do not know the end from the beginning, but God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so Paul, while admitting the blindness of man due to Satan's deliberate work to obscure belief in the gospel, he goes on to say, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, that's Genesis 1, verse 31, excuse me, verse 3. God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 20, all over again. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Satan and sin do their worst to blind men that God the Creator commands the light to shine in our dark hearts, thus overriding our inability to respond right, granting us the sight that we so desperately need. This God does through the preaching of Christ as Lord, and so we preach the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. And what is more than not only do they not want to hear it, they cannot believe it if they got it. Well, 
Why? Because faith comes by hearing. Not, not resident faith, which people have. Not those silly illustrations. Well, you know, I, I have faith that when I sit down on my stool up here, I won't go crashing to the floor. That's not faith. That's knowledge. Why? Because I've sat on this stool a thousand times. It's always supported me and never dropped me on the floor. So I sit on the chair with knowledge. That's not faith. But God does through the preaching of Christ as Lord, which is the extent of the gospel, to people who don't want to hear it and cannot believe it when they do hear it. God says, faith comes. By hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. Ah. (coughs) I don't have the faith to believe. Now what are you going to do about that, God? This all seems like a fairy tale. I don't believe any of this stuff. You're here. God has you here. I've been preaching to you the word of Christ from the New Testament. And God says, faith comes by hearing. And you're hearing when you're listening to the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. So we pray believing that with the preaching of God's word and particularly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God through his spirit, through the spirit of Christ, will work in dead hearts, bringing life to them that they do not have in and of themselves. Belief where they have no faith. Trust where they are skeptical and tentative and will not accept. My brother-in-law, who is now dead and gone for many years, was... I wouldn't call him an atheist, but I would call him an agnostic. It was this idea of, if you can prove it to me, then I'll believe in God. But I knew in my heart that that was just a ruse. He wouldn't believe if, you know, I could perform miracles for him. But he listened to every sermon that I preached here at Thornbrook. Because this is broadcast. So on Monday morning, tomorrow, he would call me and say, You said Sunday. Where did you come up with that? And I'd have the chance to share the gospel with him. Every Monday, ding-a-ling-a-ling, skeptical, agnostic, brother-in-law would call 
and he would drill me on the scriptures that I taught. This went on for months. But I noticed something in the months. The man with his dukes up and always wanting to take me down and condemn and make me sound like some idiot and fool began to mellow and mellow. And the tenor of his questions changed from, yeah, what about this? To, well, you said this, and I'm a bit confused. What did you mean by that? The whole tenor of the questioning changed. I told my sister, God's doing something in his heart. She told the family out in Rochester, God's doing something in his heart. The family said, with dad, you, you got to be kidding. God never do, is going to move in. And they're all skeptical too. They're all unbelievers. Lo and behold, God saved him. In the last months of his life, we had great conversations on Monday after the sermon on Sunday. Only it wasn't, it was, boy, that was really good. What what did you mean when you said that, that, that? And it was that type of response. God can reach through the stony heart and give a heart of flesh. And how does he do that? We preach the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. They cannot believe it when they do hear it. But when we preach the gospel, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what they don't want to hear God in his grace will be sure that they do hear. And they hear it in here, in the heart. Not just up here. Up here too, because the gospel is reasonable when you get your head screwed on right. And God can overcome the strongest resistant wills. He did with me. He did with many other people sitting here. Christ is in the business of saving people from themselves. From their own sin. Our Lord, we just pray that you will bless us with the truth of your word. Thank you for the scriptures. How would we ever know how to please God, come to God, who God is, what he is? How would we know any of that if we didn't have the scriptures? We do have pictures of this in our culture. We have nations right today who have no Bible 
who have no preaching from the word of God, and what are they worshiping? Pieces of stone, pieces of silver, pieces of gold, things in nature, a bird, an animal. They're lost. Faith comes to them by the word of the word of God, but they're not getting the word of God, and so faith isn't coming to them. Faith that saves is the gift of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why preaching the gospel is so very, very vital to to a person's salvation. May we ever be faithful in declaring the truth of God's word. We don't have to be a preacher to do this. Lord, we just need to be a faithful witness. We know more in our little finger than the world knows in all of its encyclopedias. And we know the man, the God-man, who can break their heart and bring salvation to their deadness. We thank you for that. We've experienced that. But, Lord, we're longing in our heart for our children, our friends, our family, that you will continue to work in their lives through the gospel, through our witness, through sharing that we do, through reading the scriptures, studying them. Bring about a revival, Lord, in our nation for your glory and our good. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. That's the red hymnal. And it's 493 in Trinity. This is a great hymn. It's in the form of a prayer. And it's, the author is admitting in the hymn, admitting to God his own failures with reference to God. We have not known thee as we ought. He's saying we've been negligent. You've given us all we need to know in the scriptures, but we haven't measured up to that. We've ignored the book. We've read other things. We've listened to other people. Consequently, we don't know you. Why not? Well, because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But if we won't hear the Bible then we're going to remain in darkness. So let's sing this. We have not known thee as we ought. Nor learn thy wisdom, grace, and power. The things of earth, that is what has filled our thoughts. And trifles 
Yeah. Trifles of the passing hour. Lord, give us light. Thy truth to see. And make us wise in knowing thee. Let's stand together and sing. Four nine. <clears throat>
Our Lord, this hymn is our confession to you that we have not always done due diligence in terms of our responsibilities to love you, to obey you, to know you, to learn of you, and to disseminate the good news about you to our lost and dying world. And what about our families? Have we not cared enough to share the gospel with a brother, a sister, a mother, a dad? I pray, Lord, that you will help us to realize that time is short. The day of judgment is approaching. The signs are everywhere. And the scripture says you're not always going to strive with us. You're not always going to work towards bringing us to repentance. There's going to be an end to the mercy of God. And judgment day is going to be on us. And it's going to be on us like a lightning flash. We won't know it until it's here. But when it comes, it's too late. So Lord, give us some insight concerning these things, and in particular to our own hearts. We know if we're not right with God. We do know it. We know it. But we haven't done anything about it. And I pray that you'll change all that for your honor and your glory, but also for our good. Your commands are for our good. And we thank you for that. Well, you do save rebellious people. I'm one of them. And this room is full of a lot of people that were saved out of their rebellion towards you. So you're in the business of salvation. And I pray that you'll touch our hearts this day. Save our kids as well. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Mm-hmm.